Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Joe Zimmel and Valerie Friedman. Hundreds of thousands of Puerto Ricans live in New England, with many of the basic needs that loved ones on the island are now cut off from. Being able to get a, a glass of clean water, stuff that we take for granted, it's a complete feeling of helplessness. From the New England News Collaborative, this is Next. I'm John Dankoski. We'll track our region's connections to Puerto Rico, and we'll see if an old factory can revitalize a neighborhood it once turned its back on. When you don't have the vitality of the neighborhood that existed before, there are other choices that are you know, much more in your face and much stronger than the hard work and sacrifice. Also, if it seems like craft beer in New England is booming, that's because it's growing faster than anywhere else in the U.S. But is it growing too fast? Shelf space is shrinking, tap space is shrinking. We'll raise a glass next. Next is powered by the New England News Collaborative, eight public media companies coming together to tell the story of a changing region, with support from the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. This is Next. I'm John Dankoski. It's frustrating. It's frustrating waking up at one or two in the morning, trying to call. You're trying to hope that they get that one little dot of a signal just to say, hey, are you okay? The conditions are devastating. My sister lost her home, and my mother's town is impenetrable. I have no idea where to begin helping them. Those are just some of the messages we're getting from some of the nearly 600,000 Puerto Ricans living in New England, struggling to get a hold of loved ones there after the devastation left by Hurricane Maria. No power, no water, little phone service, dwindling food supplies with no end in sight. Ryan Karen King has more. Annette Madeira was feeling guilty as she prepared dinner yesterday. She says she feels it's not fair that she has access to basic needs when her family in Puerto Rico doesn't. Being able to get a, a glass of clean water, stuff that we take for granted, putting our air conditioner on, simple things, going to bed, clean sheets. It's a complete feeling of helplessness. Madeira did find out her family is safe now. Her cousin, a police officer in San Juan, has been sending her updates on Facebook. But Madero hasn't been able to speak with her mother, who lives in the central part of the island. My mother is in Corozal. Corozal is in a place where there's two main bridges, and those two bridges collapsed. The, the entrance, the exit, the entrance, the exit on both ends collapsed. So there's no way in. So for me to say, I'm going to put something in the mail, they're going to get it, it's unrealistic. Madero says she's worried that aid isn't coming in fast enough. They're going to need money to go buy food, you know, and eventually if that doesn't become available to them, then you can't eat money. Madero says she's fortunate that at least she's been able to communicate with some of her family members. Many of the other Puerto Ricans she's spoken to still haven't heard anything from their families on the island. That's Ryan Karen King of WNPR reporting. In the city of Holyoke, Massachusetts, 80% of public school students are of Puerto Rican descent. As people try to flee the island, the district is expecting an influx of new students. Jill Kaufman reports. Students, families, and many school staff in Holyoke are still desperate for news from relatives on the island, with so many homes destroyed and a long-term power outage ahead. 
Holyoke School Superintendent Stevens Reich says they're getting ready for new arrivals. We're in constant contact with um, the relief efforts and um, uh, that the city has set up and the region has set up so that as they start interfacing with families, they're providing us with information about families that may be coming with children. Zreich says for now, most new families will be classified as homeless. And under federal guidelines, that means schools must also provide them things like food for the weekends, money for school uniforms. Many students, he says, will come without any records. Whether it's their IEP records, whether it's their immunizations, that's one thing we're in active discussion about. How, is, how do we get them enrolled as quickly in po- as possible? Iriana Sintron is coordinating much of this. She's the district's chief of family and community engagement. She says the schools need to be ready to support a variety of scenarios. You know, is this, you know, a more permanent move? Is it, you know, really temporary? Puerto Ricans don't necessarily want to leave the island. People want to rebuild and people want to, you know, make sure they're able to rebuild and to, you know, get the aid that they need in the island. So while they wait for emergency money and materials, Sintron says adults may stay put and send their kids to Holyoke. That may mean that some of the kids, you know, may come to live with grandma or with an aunt or with a cousin, you know, for a little while. Way before the weather disaster hit, Sintron says Puerto Rico's decade-long economic crisis has been causing families to leave. Increasingly, Holyoke has become home to many of them. 75 students from the island just started here in the new school year. And there's room for more in some schools. The district is already in state receivership. Without knowing how many students are coming from Puerto Rico, Superintendent Zreich says he doesn't know what extra money they'll need or end up receiving. The best they can do this week is get ready. That's Jill Kaufman reporting. We'd like to hear from you if you're still trying to reach loved ones or get help to Puerto Rico. Go to our Facebook page at Next New England. A New England senator was at the center of the other big news of the week as Maine's Susan Collins announced she wouldn't support the latest attempt to repeal and replace Obamacare. It's not the first time she's broken with leaders in the GOP, and it's a reminder that the independently-minded Yankee Republican isn't extinct. Here to tell us more is someone who follows Collins very closely. Steve Missler is the chief political correspondent for Maine Public Radio. Welcome back to Next. Thanks for having me. What else can you tell us about this Republican Maine senator? I mean, what are a few things to know about her? Well, I mean, the first thing is that she originally ran for governor in 1994 and lost. And it was her only electoral defeat. She lost to uh, Angus King, who's now an independent U.S. senator and who is now the junior senator because she has risen to being the senior senator. Um, And she comes from a tradition, a, a Republican tradition of the Republican, as you would think of a New England moderate, conservative on fiscal issues and liberal or tolerant on on social issues. And I think she has tried to keep that. She's walked that line for a very long time. And um, so now she's in a different position because the party is tacking a little bit farther right. Some would say a lot farther right. And so, um, yeah, that's where she sits right now. Are any people in Maine, especially political observers like yourself, surprised about her recent no votes on ACA repeal? I'm not, um, in part because I think, you know, her her vote on both repeal efforts now um, were based on um, an analysis of those bills, how they would impact her constituents, uh, specifically rural Maine, where she is from, um, which sometimes is forgotten in this state. And I think, um, you know, and she's very much process oriented. Um, you know, I think we heard a lot about that if you were watching or reading the news coverage. 
Um, and this bill and the previous one did not follow the regular order, as John McCain might say, um, and certainly not the regular process. And I think that combined with the effects on the state, um, she felt like she had cover to to vote no on this particular bill. So how is she being viewed in Maine right now? Obviously, uh, being a New England moderate at most times in the history of the Republican Party in all the New England states is something that will put you in pretty good stead with voters. Right now, though, there's this huge split in the Republican Party. I mean, what are people saying about her and her taking this forward position against the Trump administration and against uh, efforts in her party to repeal and replace Obamacare? Well, I think I think on the Republican activist side, it's they're not happy. You know, the repealing of Obamacare has been a big issue. It's been a big issue all over the country, and it's a big issue in Maine as well. Um, and they're not pleased that she has not voted for these bills. I mean, and, and the person leading that effort is the, the governor, Go- Governor Paul LePage, a Republican that she helped reelect and helped get elected the first time in 2010. Um, but that whatever <laughs> simpatico that they had before is gone. And he has been out there ever since, even before the first repeal bill, um, blasting her, saying that she has not voted for the interests of Mainers saying that she has uh, forgotten about the state as she's too interested in national news media exposure. Um, he said this, by the way, by writing a, a, an op-ed in the Wall Street Journal. Um, but <laughs> <laughs> there you go. But and again, I mean, even back last year, she was in his crosshairs because she said that she could not support Donald Trump, could not, didn't think he was fit for the office. Um, shortly after Trump was elected, the governor was out on conservative radio stations saying, he said this. He said she is she is done in the Republican Party, and he has taken an active role and uh, trying to get to criticize her as she mulls a potential gubernatorial run. I, I have to loop back though to her support for Paul LePage. I mean, so many Republicans across the country, if they've not been supportive of Donald Trump. Uh, as a national politician, they've maybe sat on the sidelines and not said anything about him as a candidate, and they've been pressured by some on both sides to do so. Uh, with with Senator Collins, you've actually got someone who went out in support of someone who said, I'm Donald Trump before Donald Trump. How did that marriage, if you call it that, ever come to be? Well, I think she has a long tradition of uh, backing Republican uh, candidates, whether they're, whether they're running in the legislature. I mean, she goes out and, and parades in their districts with them and um, will cut audio ads for them or just allow herself to be photographed with them. She's donated tons of money to the main Republican Party and also to Republican candidates. So I think she viewed the governor and supporting him as part of what she's always done, regardless of the fact that they are they are divergent on key policy issues. She's almost built a party within the party. Now, there's been some defections, uh, the governor knows most notably, and then some others that are farther right as well. Um, they've sort of forgotten what she has helped do for them. Um, but she, that's what she's done. She's built this coalition within the party. Um, but I don't know how they're feeling about her right now. When we see someone like a Susan Collins or, or an Elizabeth Warren, Bernie Sanders, or you know, in the past, Joe Lieberman from Connecticut, these are very high-profile people who we think of more as national figures than local figures. Does she, with all of the attention she gets in Washington, does she really fit with the, with, with the main ideal of what a politician is supposed to be in 2017? Well, I think it depends on who you ask. I mean, again, I think for the 
for the majority of people, I mean, she's very popular in Maine, all right? And if you if you trust the opinion polls taken, I mean, she's one of the most popular senators in the country, short, maybe second or third to Bernie Sanders. And Angus King, of course, is an independent, and he's also very popular. So she's she's in a very safe place doing what she's doing right now. I think she's well-received there. I mean, you talk to people who are somewhat politically engaged, and they're happy with her. If they have malleable political views, they're happy with her. But if they have hard and fast ideological views, they're suspicious of her. Mm. Steve Missler, thanks so much for joining us. I appreciate it. Yeah, thanks for having me. Steve Missler is chief political correspondent for Maine Public Radio. Claremont, New Hampshire, is still reeling from an incident involving a young biracial boy and a group of teenagers. The victim's family says it's an open and shut case of racism and attempted lynching. The teenager's family says that's not what happened. They say the kids were playing with a rope and climbing trees when things went wrong. As Brita Green reports, the incident has divided the community. Daddy Pop's Tumble In Diner in Claremont is one of those metal-sided diner cars straight out of the 1940s. Inside, Fallon Carter, the owner's daughter, is talking about the alleged attack with her mom and a friend. They're sitting on the other side of the counter as she works, the vent fan over the griddle on full blast. He just so happened to be uh, of a different origin. Like, I mean, we're all Americans here. We're all from a different area of the world. Carter says she doesn't know what the motivation was, but it's probably just bullying. That is a problem here. Her friend, Natalie Jarvis, jumps right, that in. That was my point, that if that hadn't been the method of the bullying, then um, this wouldn't have been probably interpreted and blown up this way as a racist thing. Race, owner Deborah Kirby adds, is not an issue in Claremont. After all, the city is more than 95% white. Well, then there are people that are like, so-called, I don't know, skinheads or what, supremacists, whatever. And um, you'll see swastika tattoos and stuff. Yeah, and I don't even see them really bothering anybody. I I think because we're not inner city, we're still out in the boonies, kind of. So in this area, I don't find that racism is a problem. I've heard this perspective a fair amount over the past several weeks. And at the city level, while the city manager and mayor denounce racism, they say broader anti-violence efforts are a good way to respond. They haven't wanted to focus on just race. Others say that response misses the point. The idea that that an act like putting a noose around someone's neck could be called, oh, they were just kidding around, this is bullying. That's not bullying. That's Rachel Edens. She lives about 25 miles up the road from Claremont, where she advises black, first-generation, and low-income college students. And she also works on issues like diversity and inclusivity. She's from the South and says, moving to this area, she was stunned at the level of racism she's encountered. She says at one point, there were three Confederate flags visible just on the street where she lives. Uh, There's definitely a feeling of not being welcomed, of being in danger, um, of always wondering when something is going to happen. 
Olivia Lapierre is a racial justice organizer in the Upper Valley. She says she hears this idea that was brought up in the diner often, that there just aren't that many people of color here, and therefore race isn't an issue. Um, which is, I mean, first you're denying the existence of people of color who do live here um, and their experiences and their oppression. But in addition to you're saying that like people, that racism only exists where black people exist, that we are the problem and we bring the problems with us. LaPierre says, in her experience, even well-intentioned people don't stick around to make lasting change over the long term. She spoke at a vigil in town after the incident hit the news, leading the crowd in a Black Lives Matter chant. A smaller group met again last week. About 40 people, mostly white, several from out of town, sat in folding chairs in a church meeting room downtown. Amy Cousins was one of them. She drove about an hour to be here with two of her children. She's white. Her husband is black. I grew up in these small towns. I feel happy and comfortable in these small towns. I feel, for the most part, happy and comfortable for my ch- with my children and my husband. Um, but there are incidents that come at us, um, smaller, but there's that fear of bigger. The group broke into small discussion circles. They answered prompts like, what do you like about the community where you live? And what do you think could be improved? Cousins' children joined the discussion for a while. Adia is 10. The people that I just randomly meet are nice and they don't really, they don't really bring up anything about, you know, like my skin tone or anything like that. But Adia also has teenage siblings, and her mom says as they've gotten older, they get more comments around their race. You know, things that teenagers think are jokey, um, but I've also taught them when push comes to shove, people who they think might be on their side will not necessarily be on their side. In the small groups, participants were also asked whether they'd personally witnessed an act of discrimination and what they did about it. This, racial justice advocates say, is one area where people can really help, learning to intervene, to have those hard conversations day to day. As the meeting wrapped up, its organizer said she'll plan another gathering next month. Bring a friend, she said. For a city of 13,000, they could use a few more people to make a difference. That's Brita Green of New Hampshire Public Radio reporting. Coming up, an old factory in a low-income neighborhood gets a new life. And this time, it's not artist studios or high-end lofts. It's next. Next is made possible in part by our founding supporters, who believe in the power of collaborative news coverage, including the Common Sense Fund, supporting the New England News Collaborative in its coverage of climate change and global warming. Many New England cities used to be manufacturing hubs. Workers lived near where they worked, and they supported the other businesses that sprung up around them. Today, these old factories are puzzles to solve. What do we do with these things? Some retain a bit of small manufacturing today. Others are converted into high-end lofts or artist studios, even world-class art museums like Mass Mocha in North Adams, Massachusetts. The building that housed the Swift factory is tucked into a residential section of Hartford's North End neighborhood. And its industrial history is, well, it's a bit fancier than that of many textile or machinery mills in the region. Gold leaf was manufactured there for more than 100 years. Gold leaf is thin, delicate, it's paper-like, but it is real gold. 
Leaf produced its swift adorned the dome atop the Connecticut Capitol building and decorated the lettering on the sides of local fire trucks. The company was owned by a white family, the Swifts, and the neighborhood, which had mostly white immigrant residents in the early 1900s, gradually became African American and West Indian. It still is today. The Swift factory closed in 2005. A nonprofit called Community Solutions took ownership in 2010 and surveyed the neighborhood to figure out what to do with the site. North End residents said they wanted jobs. The unemployment rate here is about 21%. Health was also a major concern. Residents suffer from high rates of chronic disease. On a visit to the factory this summer, I spoke with John Thomas. He's the project's community engagement manager about what's to come. And we started off by getting a feel for the neighborhood. So we're in Northeast Hartford. Uh, in spite of what the news reports say, uh, we're not afraid to live here. Uh, it's still a very, you know, vibrant community with, you know, I have very strong ties here. Um, you know, most of the people I know are hardworking people. In spite of the fact that, you know, I like to say this about this community. If you're looking for trouble, you can find it very easily. But you, you know, most of the time, trouble won't find you here. I'm the son of uh, Georgians who came up here, you know, not the country Georgia, but <laughs> South Georgia uh, in, in the southern United States. Hardworking people, uh, sharecroppers, uh, came off of farms and came up here and looking for better opportunity in the factories in the industrial Northeast and uh, came here, found employment here, uh, but shortly thereafter, uh, because of the mobility of people uh, that was created through the very same jobs. Uh, once that mobility was realized, people pretty much moved out of, of the community and the, uh, the businesses went with them. Mm -hmm. With that gone, we're, you know, pretty much, you know, we've had some very good opportunities for education, uh, but when you're, you don't have the vitality of the neighborhood that existed before, there are other choices that are pretty, you know, much more in your face and much stronger than the hard work and sacrifice. You know, you have an illicit trade that pretty much provides opportunity where there is none. You got people who, who turn to it and uh, over time, you know, we're talking 30 years of that trade entrenched in our communities. Over time, that becomes a, a viable option for people who would otherwise not have an opportunity to quote unquote succeed. After the factory closed, Thomas says people who live around here thought about what they might do with the space, but without money those ideas couldn't really go anywhere. Now the Community Solutions is renovating the building, he says some residents are still skeptical. You know, in a neighborhood like this that redlining occurred for uh, occurred in where people couldn't get bank loans, couldn't get the support, you pretty much assume that that's the state of things. So you don't look for opportunities that you believe don't exist. And then when, you know, a group of, you know, and I'm a community engagement person, so to some people I'm Uncle Tom. To some people, you know, I'm just a poster boy for the, the powerful white people who took over the building. And so my, a major part of my job is to spread accurate information about the struggle that even this group of white people <laughs> who I work with and for, you know, our struggle. And not just the struggle of me working for this group, but the community struggle to realize 
the fact that this is a 30 plus million dollar uh, investment in a community that has not been invested in, in over 30, 30 years. Tell us about the opportunities that we'll begin to see right based around this building that's going to help to do some of what you hope to do. So the matrix of development that Community Solutions is offering here involves, you know, bringing food production um, operations to the site. You know, if I can mention Bears uh, Barbecue, we're speaking with them to come in as a tenant and Bears hires, you know, a high percentage of formerly incarcerated people. And so that opportunity is, is uh, central to what we want to do here. Uh, a health center for pediatric health is another idea that we have here. Um, indoor growing, some kind of indoor growing operation. A shared office space. I just want to ask you one more thing about that. So many of, of the ideas that you just laid out are things that in all sorts of communities around Connecticut, around New England, uh, people are putting in uh, old factory buildings like this because the space is so great. But I think this focus on food is really interesting. And I, I wonder if you can talk about that, whether it's indoor growing of things or, or large-scale production of food. I mean, talk about why food is so integral to this. Well, we all have to eat, right? Food is an industry that isn't going to go anywhere. I can say as African-Americans and Latinos, all people, everyone has a food narrative. So the African-American food narrative is you know, closely tied to what people are actually doing here. Um, so now I believe that we can reclaim that narrative in all of its aspects, you know, even the soul food aspect. And I, I can tell you, you know, I realized short, a short while ago that I could eat myself to health. And I'm dealing with people with high blood pressure, obesity. You know, people don't realize that chronic illness is killing more people in this neighborhood than the bullets that fly around here due to arguments. Architect Patrick McKenna is the project manager. He says there's another reason for the focus on food. Jobs in the food business, in the food sector, are accessible to people in this neighborhood who might not have finished high school or might have other barriers to employment. The high school graduation rate here is only about 38%. Uh, so there's no point in us bringing in high-tech manufacturing jobs that you need master's degrees. Um, jobs in kitchens and in restaurants are available to people in this community. McKenna is also in charge of giving tours of the factory, a two-story building that was expanded bit by bit from 1895 to 1948. And as we'll see, there's a lot of work to be done before the building can be turned into a food hub. Holes in the floor need to be patched, lead paint and oil needs to be removed for starters. But outside on the lawn next to the building, there's already something food-related going on, a vegetable garden. The Hartford Food System run an urban farm here. They've been growing on this site um, for six years now. Um, <clears throat> so they, they grow here, they put up a greenhouse a couple of years ago, and they use the basement of our office as storage for their mobile market. It's an old school bus that's painted and drives around the neighborhoods selling produce. So I, I'm not personally a, with my hands <laughs> in the dirt, but they have garlic over on the far side, which they're, they're just started to harvest. You can see it kind of on the table there. Uh, there's a lot of greens here, um, kales and collards. We head back inside to the echoey industrial space of the Swift factory. It's pretty rough. Broken windows, peeling paint, debris everywhere. History, too. So, uh, with it being a gold leaf factory, when you've got gold, you need vaults. This is one of the vaults. So if you want to come around here, watch your step. Um, there's some broken glass and uneven floors. They left. 
Um, uh, this is the, the big daddy vault, I like to call it. The, the walls are over two feet thick. And the, you know, the, like an elevator shaft would be now, this was built you know, before the building and then the building was built around it. You all come to take a look inside, but um, uh, we're pretty sure they didn't leave anything lying around. <laughs> Yeah, it's a, it's, a, it's a pretty cool space. <laughs> it's a really cool space. So, uh, you know, as part of the refurbishment, obviously we're going to keep the vault. There's, even if we wanted to, we, we, we couldn't get rid of this There's vault. <laughs> Boy, as an architect, you must be just excited as hell. This must be just a, a playland of things to, to look at, play with, figure out how to make work. Yeah, yeah no, I, I, I like to think of as architecture as this, you know, as I mentioned, kind of solving these three-dimensional puzzles, and I'm a, I'm a sucker for kind of old industrial buildings. So yeah, I'm, I'm super excited by it, you know. The vault, of course, was important for a business that's all about gold. McKenna takes us to a vast, high-ceilinged room with some hulking machinery still in it. So this is the gold leafing department. Um, the gold was taken out of the vault that we were just in and it was brought over to the furnace here, the little building, a uh, little machine in the corner. It was melted there. It was extruded and rolled out on, on a series of rollers that they've taken away. And uh, it was rolled out to a ribbon that was about an inch wide and a thousandth of an inch thick. And they, they cut that into one by one inch squares and then they started to work on it and they, they layered it up on parchment paper, four by four inch parchment paper. And they had a stack, maybe, you know, three quarters of an inch to an inch high, and it was beaten by a series of mechanical hammers. Um, they, they beat that gold until um, that one by one inch square filled the four by four inch square. And they took it apart, peeled it apart, cut up the gold into one by one inch squares again, layered it up on four by four inch parchment paper again, and then repeated that process three times until that gold was three millionths of an inch thick. So you could hold it up and see light through it, even though there would be no holes in it. Um, and so then they took that and they kind of pressed it and made it into a little book. And that was the, the product that was used on the state capitol buildings, signage and railroad companies. That gold leaf was handled by workers like Anna Smith. She's here for a tour too. It's the first time she's been inside since she worked here in the early 1980s. Just forget my name is Anna. A lot of people doesn't think that I was really a black person. Smith says when she worked here, the factory management made sure workers didn't take any product home with them at the end of the day. Before they went home, workers had to pass through a detector with a built-in fan known as the blower. You're not leaving this place without the blower on you. If that bell go off, you're going to stay until it clears. And those are one of the hard days I had because I had a babysitter. I had to stay here. I'm supposed to be off at 4. I had to stay here about 6 o'clock. And they finally found it in my eyelash. <laughs> one little flick. And they wouldn't let me go. Can I ask you a question, ma'am? I'm John, by the way. Hi. Anna. Very good to meet you. Did you get a feeling like through that whole process that you were trusted or that someone was always looking at you and all the other people who were working here thinking that you were trying to get away with something? At first, you were not trusted because they were someone always going by and looking. Later, I felt trusted. That's interesting. But we were watched because we did not know we were working with gold. We, it didn't look was so thin. <laughs> it was on plastic molds that came about this big square. It, it looked like thin, thin paper. Did you, did you know Bob Swift? Yeah. Uh, yeah. 
So he's been back and he's told us some of the stories and I, we kind of heard this and thought it was an urban legend, but Bob Swift kind of backed it up and he said that before, you know, that gold was so thin, as you, as you mentioned, that it could be blown into any little crevice. Yes. Um, but before they donated the building to us, they cut up the flooring in three locations where they handled the gold. So in the gold leafing department down there, up here, and then in the second floor of building two, um, where they had the museum, they burned the flooring here um, in the in the building at the in, in building six, and they sent that ash away to get processed, and they got over two hundred thousand dollars worth of gold out of the floorboards. Wow. Anna Smith is African American, and she tells us that she never saw another black person working at the factory when she was there. She lived in another neighborhood at the time, and the fact that she was able to get a job here while people across the street couldn't get hired created tension. I was questioned every day. Matter of fact, they throw stones at us one day um, and asked us, how did we get in, how did I get in here? My girlfriend lived right across the street, and she was just, she didn't say she was mad, but she let me know she was angry. And what did I say? And I'm serious, I just said, I need a job. My name is this. I'm pretty quick with my hands. With Anna Smith and her husband joining along, we make our way to the last stop on the tour. This is the space that's gonna be rented by a local upscale barbecue joint. So here again, you know, the building style changes. We've got a concrete floor, we've got a steel roof with steel trusses, and uh, you can see the shinier metal deck where we replace some of the roof. So Bears Barbecue are gonna have the first floor and the second floor of this space. They're gonna make the sides and sauces for their restaurant, so no, no wow. retail here. Um, <laughs> but yeah. Yeah, yeah, so Bears wanna come in here because they wanna employ people from the neighborhood. So the idea is, the idea is, you know, to bring in industry here that's gonna, that's gonna uh, benefit the, the people who live around it. Um, Bears already employ a number of people from this neighborhood. Like Community Solutions is also finalizing a lease with an indoor hydroponic grower. They hope to start construction by the end of the year and open up in the summer of 2019. And they hope many of the jobs will be filled by people from right in this neighborhood. For pictures of the Swift Factory, go to nextnewengland.org. Coming up, something else that gets made in lots of New England mills? Beer, and lots of it. It's next. Next is made possible in part by our founding supporters who believe in the power of collaborative news coverage, including the Melville Charitable Trust, supporting the New England News Collaborative in its coverage of housing and homelessness. That's Dr. Thomas Michelle finally welcoming a colleague to Boston's Logan Airport. Iranian researcher Syed Sarabi was supposed to arrive in February, but he had his visa suspended due to President Trump's travel ban. I'm so excited. <laughs> I'm Thomas. A very nice to meet you. Welcome to Boston. Welcome to America. Thank you for your kindness. It's one of many stories like this we've been following of people trying to get to the U.S. Meanwhile, Germany's leader Angela Merkel has been spending tax dollars to put up more than one million asylum seekers from places like Syria and Iraq. And that's made a lot of Germans unhappy. A far-right anti-immigrant party fared better than expected in this past week's election. 
Cassandra Basler from member station WSHU has been covering immigration to New England for our Facing Change project and recently went to Germany to look at the challenges facing immigrants and the places that host them. Welcome back to Next. Thanks so much. You've been reporting on immigration and refugee resettlement here in Connecticut. Uh, Are refugees here facing some of the same challenges that they face in Germany? Yeah, you know, refugees or migrants who want asylum really face the same challenge no matter where they're settling. They're trying to fit into society. So I think Germany and the United States have different answers to that challenge. The German government literally put a woman in charge of helping refugees integrate. Uta Zaumweber runs a national department that has these orientation classes for refugees that say, welcome to Germany. And she also gets people into language classes that are paid for by the state. See, it's sometimes difficult. We understand very well the needs of refugees. They want to work to be part of society. They also want and need to work because they bring back remittances to their families that are very often still in the country of origin. But the language barrier, there are not so many jobs in Germany that you could do without having a good knowledge of of, of German. That mindset is almost the opposite way the refugee system in the U.S. works. The U.S. basically says to refugees, get a job ASAP, because it offers limited income assistance for the first three months when a refugee settles here. So it makes it really hard for them to learn English because they have to get a job quickly to start paying their own rent and supporting their family. So why do you think that the approach to welcoming newcomers is so different here than it is there? Well, the the situation can't really be an apples-to-apples comparison because refugees coming to the U.S. get a pathway to permanent residency. That's partly because the U.S. has the world's strictest screening process, so applicants go through security checks with four different agencies. In Germany, they had millions of migrants knocking on their door in 2015, so Merkel basically had no choice but to let them in. And the immigration office said, we'll get a roof over your head now, and then we'll vet your story and decide how long or if you can stay later. And that means most people can only stay one year in Germany, and they have to check in each year to verify their status to get government benefits. I'm wondering how Germany has handled some of the pushback that's come from some community members. Sure. Well, Germany right now is said to be facing an identity crisis, and this election was supposed to decide if the country wanted to continue to be this multicultural, welcoming society. And you can't really undo a multicultural society once it's there. Um, But so Germany has to find out ways to accept the different people that they've welcomed in the past couple years and temper this growing anti-Islam sentiment that's happening across Europe. Germany right now doesn't assign refugees to towns that are considered anti-immigrant, and they measure that by looking at whether there have been hate crimes or if there's a rise of hate groups against certain people or newcomers. Um, But then we see that those same towns that say they don't want immigrants to be settled there tend to be the most afraid of them. So this seems to be sort of a chicken and the egg issue. Cassandra Bassler covers immigration for the New England News Collaborative and our Facing Change project. Uh, Thank you so much, Cassie, for joining us. I really appreciate it. Thank you so much, John. It's Oktoberfest time, and the craft beer industry in New England has plenty to raise a glass to. Craft beer is growing faster here than anywhere in the country. But is it growing too fast? Is it possible to have too much good beer? Tom Verdi went to find out. Business has been booming and bubbling at Graysale Brewery in Westerly, Rhode Island. The sounds and smells of fresh beer simmering away in brand new fermenting tanks permeate the historic brick building. Owner Jennifer Brinton says 
the additional 60-barrel tanks were needed to keep up with demand for Captain's Daughter and Flying Jenny, two of the brewery's most popular ales. This last expansion that we're going through now, we have four more 60s coming in, and then this one over here is a 120. Graysale's million-dollar expansion doubles the footprint of the facility, as well as its annual capacity of 6,500 barrels. Graysale is among the nearly 350 New England craft breweries to open in the last decade or so. In terms of production growth, that's more than three times the national average, according to the Colorado-based Brewers Association. For craft beer fans like Matt Cavati of Mystic, Connecticut, a regular at the five-year-old Beard Brewery in nearby Stonington, it's clearly a buyer's and a drinker's market. There's Fox Farm that just opened up in Boston. We go to Trillium, um, uh, and then uh, we go up to Massachusetts to uh, Treehouse Spring as well. If we're in Vermont, we go to The Alchemist, we go to um, uh, Hill Farmstead. So kind of wherever we're in the area, we kind of seek out local breweries. New Englanders' taste for beer goes back to the Pilgrims. They each drank a gallon a day aboard the Mayflower and landed at Plymouth Rock not just because they were off course, but because they were running out of beer, which they considered safer to drink than water. By the mid-20th century, most New England towns and cities had local breweries just down the block. But these gradually folded in the face of competition from the major national brands. These days, the region is still playing catch-up to the West Coast in Colorado, where the craft beer craze began back in the 1980s. Yet in some corners of New England, where other iconic industries once ruled, craft beers is doing just fine. Melissa Corbin is executive director of the Vermont Brewers Association. The economic impact that craft brewing had in Vermont is estimated at $376.7 million in 2016. So that is exceeded the maple syrup industry. And as far as skiing goes, that's a $900 million industry. But when you just take into account skiing on the actual mountain and not the hotels and restaurants around that mountain, that's a $300 million industry. So when you just look at skiing itself, craft beer has exceeded on mountain skiing as an economic impact and exceeded maple syrup. New England is certainly one of the densest places for breweries and, and for you know, craft consumption around the country. That's Bart Watson, chief economist for the Brewers Association. He says that Vermont, with its 50 craft breweries and Maine with its 77, rank high in terms of breweries per capita. Maine, in fact, is number seven in the nation, while Vermont stands at number one. Watson points out these rankings are relative to those states' populations, which are smaller than those of West Coast mega craft brewing states like California or Oregon. Still, the question of whether or not the craft beer industry is reaching a saturation point is one he hears a lot from journalists. Trained economist that he is, he typically answers with yet another statistic, which he hopes puts the question into perspective. 75% of the breweries in the country still make less than 1% of the beer. That's collectively. But some brewers, like Sean Larkin of Revival Brewing in Cranston, Rhode Island, have been scanning the horizon these days and wonder just how much of that less than 1% the market can absorb. Shelf space is shrinking. That's first and foremost. Um, you know, tap space is shrinking. That's second. So if you're relying on shelves or taps to drive your business, you need to reconsider that business model. One cost-cutting strategy is contract brewing. That is, having another brewery make some of your beer for you, which saves on overhead. 
Another is a gambit that's as old as salesmanship itself. Ryan Hellert is manager of Dick's World of Wines in Westerly. What you're starting to see is breweries that may brew a very small batch, then it creates a demand so that when it comes in, that store only gets five cases and it's out the door. And I'm starting to see more of that from a lot more breweries. And that's going to be the way that these breweries survive and sustain. Because if, if it's not on the shelf and people are looking for it, and next time they see it, they buy more of it. So, no matter how you pour it or how it measures up against the big national brands, in terms of sales or production, when it comes to craft beer, less, it seems, really can be more. That's Tom Verdi reporting. In the mid-1800s, New England was a global center for the clock-making industry. Today, the region's filled with antique, often centuries-old clocks in church steeples, libraries, courthouses, and homes. That industry, of course, is long gone, and slowly the people who preserve the artifacts are disappearing, too. Dan Richards has our story. I met up with James Roberts at the Old South United Methodist Church in Reading, Massachusetts. It was easy to find. Sitting next to the town's historic green, the century-old, white, wooden-framed church stands out like a postcard. Yeah, did you see the clock by any chance? It's uh, about an eight-foot dial. It's glass, oh, about every three-quarters of an inch thick. Come on up and take a look. All right. I need somebody to help me wind it. <laughs> James brought me inside the church and led me up a flight of stairs to a closet with a ladder that led to the attic. From the attic, we climbed another ladder into a small, square, sun-filled room with massive glass clock faces on each side. In the middle of the room sat the clock itself. The mechanisms that wind it take up the entire room. We're going to take this cable and put it on this drum. It's got to go down here, come all the way down, and come back that way. It goes over there. Double pulley, and then the weight is way down in the hole, and another double pulley. I'll just wind it a little bit, then we'll talk some more. As he winds the machine, a 750-pound weight is lifted up to the ceiling of the room. The weight slowly descends over the next seven days, powering the clock. As certified master clockmakers, James and his brother David restore clocks of all ages and sizes. This church, though, is one of their longest-running clients. They've been winding this clock every week since they were first called in to repair it in 1978. But who's going to keep it and all the other timepieces they care for ticking when they retire? The answer may be nobody. That's because there's a shortage of expertly trained clockmakers, and it's only getting worse. We might like to see this one out here. See the people turn and dance while it plays the music. At David and James' shop in North Wilmington, Massachusetts, clocks and dials and chimes hang on every inch of the wall. Grandfather clocks are clustered throughout, like guests wandering through a party. The shop, in other words, is as packed as their schedule. We're swamped. We are absolutely swamped. David and James often have a year backlog on repair orders. Among expert clockmakers, that's not uncommon. You won't find a good clockmaker who doesn't have way more work than they can possibly do. That's Jordan Ficklin, the president of the American Watch and Clockmakers Association. If anyone has their finger on the pulse of the clockmaking business, it's him. There are currently probably fewer than a thousand full-time professional clockmakers in the United States. I think there certainly is capacity for two or three times that easily. 
The biggest reason for the shortage seems to be that, despite demand, hardly anyone is entering the field. And that's because there just isn't anywhere to learn. The school in Pennsylvania where David and James trained closed in 1992. Today, no full-time clockmaking programs exist in the U.S. Historically, of course, there's another way to learn, through apprenticeships. And the fate of the industry might very well depend on them. I knew that I was going to need employees to continue the business. So I developed a course of uh, an apprenticeship system based on the system that I went through in Britain. Ray Bates, owner of the British Clockmaker in Newfane, Vermont, has been making and repairing clocks for over 50 years. He's also trained several apprentices. He's particularly proud of his most recent graduate, his son Richard. It wasn't something that came easy, actually. He turned me away my initial three, three times of wanting to do this. Eventually, Richard convinced his dad that his interest wasn't just a phase and started out on a four-year apprenticeship under his father. They've been working together ever since. I love the problems. I love the having to use my brain and think things through and, um, and knowing and feeling the sense of accomplishment after I've uh, solved a series of riddles. And uh, that for me, is, is, that's the part that never gets boring to me. Richard is in his 40s, practically a spring chicken by clockmaker standards. And he's eager to carry on the business. I'll do my part to see if I can continue it. You know, the business was established in 1957. So I'd like to see it pass 100 years. That'd be pretty, pretty amazing. But I wouldn't be alive for that, I don't think. I might. I'd be in my 90s. I, you, know, you never know. Whether Ray and Richard's business makes it to 100 or not, for an industry struggling to grow its next generation, maybe even one new clockmaker is something to celebrate. That was independent producer Dan Richards reporting. We've got photos of the inside of that clock tower in Reading, Massachusetts, and of the Roberts Brothers workshop on our website, nextnewengland.org. Next is produced at WNPR by Andrew Moraskin. The executive producer is Katie Talarski. Production help this week from Heather Brandon, Sarah Buckingham, and Shannon Dooling. Our theme music is by composer Todd Merrill. You can hear more of his music at toddmerrill.com. Thanks also to Goodnight Blue Moon for their song, New England. If you like this week's show, follow our Facebook page at Next New England. We've got stories from around the region, videos, and a lot more. That's facebook.com slash nextnewengland. The New England News Collaborative is funded in part by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting and powered by WBUR Boston, Vermont Public Radio, New Hampshire Public Radio, Maine Public Radio, Rhode Island Public Radio, WSHU Public Radio Group, New England Public Radio, and WNPR.